This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, a writer and researcher at MLB.com, joined by Matt Myers, MLB.com National Content Editor. Today is Thursday, September 21st. We are coming pretty close to the end of the season. There's a couple of things we need to talk about. There is essentially a three-team tie for first place in the American League West. We're going to start with that. We're going to talk about how the National League Cy Young seemed like it was kind of a mess and now maybe seems like it's not, but also a bonus segment about the Padres. Uh, We're talking about how the Rays went from the world's worst strikeout bullpen to some kind of historically great. And uh, hey, maybe we should give some love to Wilson Contreras because he's actually been great. And of course, Matt and I will have a couple of guys you should know more about. Matt, I don't know if you've looked at the American League West standings, but as things stand today, Houston, Seattle, and Texas are all within one half of a game of one another. None of them play today, so that's not going to change too much. And according to our friend Sarah Langs, who uh, went and looked this up with the Spurs Bureau, first time that three teams in the same division were all within a half game or less of first place with 10 games are left to play since the beginning of divisions in 1969. We've had three team races before, but maybe not quite like this. And the thing that makes it extra fun for me is when you look at the games they have remaining, Seattle literally only plays the other two teams. That's it. Two series against Texas, one against Houston. And if the uh, you look at the 29 games that they have remaining, 20 involve two of the three teams playing each other. That is going to be so much fun. I'm not even sure where to start. Like, are you just watching every minute of every Mariners game for the rest of the season? Because all they do is play Texas and Houston? Seattle really controls their own destiny. On the other hand, they kind of have it the toughest, right? I mean, they... Well, they're going to be playing only these two teams, Houston and Texas, both good teams. You know, the Astros get three games with the Royals and three games with the Diamondbacks. Okay, that those, those, and those games will probably matter to the Diamondbacks, so that's, so that's not nothing, but three games with the Royals, whereas Texas gets to mix in three games against the Angels without Otani, without Trout. There's ever a team playing out the string is the current version of the Angels, so if... You know, I'm handicapping it. It feels like, I mean, it's exciting if you're the Mariners, but it's also like, oh, wow, this is kind of tough. Yeah, I think the word you use there is the correct one. And that is exciting. Like, I look at these three teams and I can't honestly say that I personally care, like, which one comes out ahead. I know some people look at this and go, oh, great. Another year of Houston against, like, whatever National League East team gets kind of hot for a couple of weeks. <laughs> it's like we saw that with Washington, Atlanta, Philadelphia. And I guess it won't be the Mets. Maybe it'll be the Marlins. That would be kind of fun. But it's a big deal, right? Because the American League West winner is almost certainly going to be locked into the number two seed. There's like a version of this where the Twins can beat them, but that's not really going to happen. So whoever wins this division gets the number two seed and a first round bye. You get to skip the wild card. The second place team in the division, they can't beat out the Rays for the top seed. So their fate would either be host a wild card round as the four seed or be on the road as a fifth seed like there's a tremendously big difference there as long as you ignore what the Padres and Phillies did last year in the National League but it still matters right because there's wild card point of view here too because Toronto actually holds the second wild card so if you look at the wild card right now Tampa Bay unless they win the East absolutely going to be the first seed and then you have three teams in competition for two spots Seattle Toronto 
Texas, Toronto has a one game advantage. And I'm pretty sure, Matt, that at various points over the last six to eight weeks, you and I have with a great deal of confidence counted out each of those teams at least once and said there's no way they're not they're not going to make the playoffs and so i've come to the conclusion i'm not going to make a prediction i'm not going to bother whatever i say will be wrong so i'm just going to enjoy it i'm just going to let it ride i will watch a ton of baseball over the next 10 days it's the only way i can approach this i keep going back and forth on what to root for in this scenario just because like you know I, ultimately i think i kind of want to root for good storylines and like you know i've been thinking going back and forth on this and i will leach did a piece for only.com today and he pointed out that like you know there are six teams that have never won the world series and four of them could make the postseason this year right and two of them are in this group we're talking about the mariners have never even been to the world series and the rangers have never won a world series they have come close very 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 close but they have not won a world series so to me the other two teams uh, that we're talking about here are the rays and the brewers the other teams that have never won the world i guess maybe we should include the padres in this conversation now that i think about it we can get to that in a second the rockies are not going to win the world we can say with confidence the rockies have zero chance of winning the world series this year so the point being that like there's something to me that's like oh yeah it's actually kind of fun these are like these are the fan bases that will like really really care and be super excited if their team has a shot so there's part of me that's like wants that for those fan bases with all due respect to the astros they've had plenty that fan base has had plenty to cheer about plenty to enjoy over the last few seasons I think I'm rooting for the most interesting possible outcome, right? So if you're Houston and you're looking at this and you're saying, well, okay, Seattle is playing either Texas or Houston every game. So there's a, and, and, you know, there's two Texas Seattle series. So one of my competitors is guaranteed to lose every night. You know, one of my, at least, you know, when they're playing each other and one is likely to win each night. So I think I'm looking at this as I want Texas and Seattle to essentially split their remaining seven games, you know, four and three. And I want Houston to not totally run over the Royals, which I'm a little worried they might do. And if they, if we can get the Royals to win like at least one out of these three, I want to come down to the final weekend of the season because Arizona, who Houston plays, will most likely have a great deal to play for because they're right in the middle of the National League wildcard mix. So we can get it down to it's the final weekend of the season and we're all within one game of each other, especially because all the games on the last day start at the same time which I remember last year didn't end up mattering that much because I don't think last year's last day was like terribly interesting. But if, if this was happening and they were all going on at the same time, that would be super exciting. That's what I'm rooting for, excitement here, because I don't care about these teams. And if you're the Astros, right, you want, but you want them to split these games, right? Because like the biggest threat to the Astros is the Rangers or the Mariners goes like six and one or seven and oh, right? Like the best case scenario for the Astros is just three and four in either in either direction, basically, right? Although I don't know offhand, although we could look it up probably if we stalled, who holds each, how Houston is in tiebreakers against each of those respective teams, because whoever they have a better tiebreaker record against, they would presumably want to go four and three. Well, we didn't have to stall that long for that. So let's see, Houston against Texas is nine and four. All right, so I've got a pretty easy one over the Rangers. Uh, oh, and I did not realize this. Did you know Houston lost eight of 10 to Seattle this year? I had no idea that was true. Okay, well, now they do have a rooting interest. So they want the, the Rangers to go four and three, basically, would be their ideal scenario. I don't care about their ideal scenario. I care about <laughs> I'm just trying to, I'm trying to think about you know all the, the competing interests and you know how to how to game out this. You know, we're at, the, we're at the, the time of year where like you game things out and then it's like one day later, oh, everything I said yesterday, doesn't matter anymore because the the situation changed so much. Oh, you want to talk about gaming things out? We're going to get to the Padres in just a minute. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. 
conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We're back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Mike Petrillo and Matt Myers. Each week, we like to move into our three batter minimum where we pick three very interesting topics of the week to focus upon. The first one was going to be, maybe a couple days ago, about how the National League Cy Young is an incomprehensible mess and how happy I was to not have a vote for it. I do kind of feel like it's sort of sorted it out a little bit over the last couple days, but we can at least get into it. There's no obvious like runaway front runner if you look at the National League Cy Young. I have seven guys who are in the mix. Logan Webb, Spencer Strider, Zach Wheeler, Zach Gallen, Kodak. Senga, Justin Steele, and Blake Snell. And the reason it's kind of hard to pull apart because everyone's got strengths and flaws. Like if you care about your starting pitchers going deep and throwing innings, you like Logan Webb and Zach Gallen because they're like 35 innings ahead of Justin Steele and Blake Snell. If you care about your guys not allowing runs, you like Blake Snell and Kodai Senga and Justin Steele. And if you care about a pitcher who just strikes out everybody, even though he allows too many runs, you care about Spencer Strider. That's how I felt a couple days ago. Since then, Justin Steele's gotten torched and Blake Snell keeps throwing shutout innings. And now I sort of feel, despite the fact that Snell lags a lot in innings and has the highest walk rate in the National League, voters are just going to look at that 233 ERA and that's that's going to be that. Like, do you think it's kind of cleared up over the last couple days? I think it's, I mean, I think it's basically a log. I mean, it looks really tight and interesting until about a week and a, about a week ago when Zach Gallen got lit up by the Mets. That was kind of like what... And I think that kind of what ended his case. And then Snell has gone out and thrown a couple other, a couple more really good outings. I mean, it's it's classic Blake Snell. He doesn't give a pits. He walks a lot of guys. When he's on, he gets out of trouble. And he did this a few years ago. I mean, actually, he's. I mean, it's wild to think that Blake Snell is going to be a two-time Zion winner. But that's very much where we're headed. Yeah, I think there's definitely going to be a subset of people who are like, he barely ever goes deep. I think the other night when he went into the seventh, it was one of the very, very few times he made it past six innings this year. He walks too many guys. He's not terribly fun to look at, like to watch pitch. You know, it's just, it just can be an excruciating experience sometimes because he's always nibbling and he's always walking guys. And when you look at, let's say, the Fangraphs wins above replacement leaderboards, he doesn't rate that well because they use theirs off of VIP, off of fielding independent pitching, which doesn't actually care about how many runs cross the plate. It's just based on strikeouts, walks, and home runs. So he's got a lot of walks. It doesn't rate that well there. If you look at baseball references, wins above replacement leaderboards. It's based almost entirely on runs allowed. Not entirely, but largely. He's going to rate well there. So it's it, it almost comes down to which subset of writers get the vote. It's not everybody in the BBWA votes like it is for the Hall of Fame, at least among eligibles. It's two writers per chapter and sort of biased towards smaller chapters, because if you are in a large chapter like New York, I know I've never gotten picked for a vote. I know other people in smaller chapters get picked for multiple votes every year. So it's I don't want to say picking the electorate, but in some sense, that's going to matter here, too, just because there's not an obvious guy here. I think it's going to be Snell. Yeah, it's going to be Snell. I think it's... For me, it's shocking how little conversation there's been around Logan Webb. And I guess it's somewhat understandable because I think Gallen had the like the innings eater case until last week and there was a lot of momentum around that. And then he sort of like, as I said, like he's gotten lit up a couple times and his ERA shot up. He's also now 10 innings behind Logan Webb. Like to me, Logan Webb, and I've beaten the drum on this podcast a lot. I think that quality innings are, I don't want to say underrated, but I think that like it is the keeping the ball away from your worst pitchers is like in some ways the most important thing that you can do. And starting pitchers that can go deep into game 
games regularly are so rare in this day and age. Logan Webb has more than 30 innings pitch, 33 inning edge on Blake Snell. That's like more than that's like an inning per more than an inning per start. That's that's wild to me. And I think that his season is being underrated. In our last Cyung Watch on movie.com, and this was before Gallon got torched. So I think this was like the day before Gallon got torched by the Mets. This might have changed it. He didn't Logan Webb did not get a single first place vote. For to me, you look at the the contenders, he's the guy who stands out to me. If I had a vote, he would get my vote. Give him your first place vote. If I had a vote now, I think I gave Gallon my vote last week before he got lit up. I think if I had a vote right now, I would vote for Logan Webb. I, totally defensible. I love Logan Webb. With you on everything you said, I think voters will see a 348 ERA for Webb and a 233 for Snell. I think that's an entire run. It's not a small gap. If I was voting and I don't have a vote, I'd probably vote Snell first and not feel terribly great about it. I'd go Webb second. And then I think I'd go Spencer Strider third because at that point, I don't even care about runs allowed. I care about almost a 40% strikeout rate, which is like, and then beyond that, sort of who cares, like however you want to go with, you know, fourth, fifth, whatever. What would your top three be? I think it would it would be Webb, Snell, Strider. Okay, fair enough. I'm I'm starting to think that just because of the nature of voting, you know, it's not ranked choice. I mean, it, it is to a certain extent, but it's like you could have 30 people say, oh, I don't really want to pick Snell, but I'm going to pick him by ever so much. And then it's going to look unanimous like he blew everybody away. Like, you know, he's Sandy Koufax. But since we're talking about the Padres, let's talk about Maximum Chaos. The Padres are, you know, the most hyped team and they spend all this money and everybody's like, this is the year, this is the year they take down the Dodgers. And I need not tell you what a disaster it's been. At one point in August, they were 11 games under 500. They have some numbers I don't even believe are true. They're 0-11 in extra innings. They're 7-22 and in one-run games. They were left for dead weeks ago. And it, it feels to me like the narrative has really like reached a tipping point this week because there have been multiple articles like picking a point, you know, supposed bad culture and clubhouse chemistry. Like The Athletic had a really in-depth one. Uh, San Diego Union Tribune had one. Obviously, from where we are sitting, we can't speak anything to what the clubhouse culture is or the organizational culture. Who knows? But we do know that a team full of superstars has not won anything. And that, for a while, thought was going to be that. And then the funny thing happened. They've won seven games in a row. And they're 13 and five this month. And if you look at who they have left to play, it's the Cardinals and Giants and White Sox. And none of those teams are any good. And I think this is incredibly unlikely. But there's a path for them to make the playoffs. And to me, that would be the funniest possible outcome of the entire season. All the pieces come out saying they're a disaster and everybody hates each other. Now they're going to make the playoffs. It won't happen. But this is like my number one rooting interest for the remainder of the season. It almost certainly won't happen, but there is like so. So the path when you look when you, when you look under the hood, there's like a path, right? So the thing you have to realize is that they don't have tiebreakers. They lose the tiebreaker to both the Diamondbacks and the Cubs. That's significant because one the currently those teams hold the second and third wild card spot. So basically, what they need is for the D-backs or the Cubs to just flame out and really the Cubs because right now the D-backs are game and a half up on the Cubs so it's just more likely they need the Cubs to flame out over their last whatever 10 games and they need to go eight and one and if they go eight and one and they end up tying the Cubs for the final spot no no sorry they need to finish ahead of the Cubs but if they end up tied with the Giants Marlins or Reds they own the tiebreaker against all three of them. So, and, and it wouldn't actually be all three of those teams because the Padres have three games left with the Giants. So in order for us to even get to this scenario, they're going to have to sweep the Giants or at least two out of three against the Giants. The Giants have two series left against the Dodgers and the Giants have looked terrible. So I'm, I'm sort of assuming for this to even be possible, the 
Giants are no longer in the picture because by definition, they'd have had to lose many games to the Padres, right? And it's, and it, yeah, and that's, a, that's a really good point. And if you're kind of doing the math at home, just like the Padres have 75 wins right now. Let's assume 9-0 and is off the table just because it probably is. But hey, if we're getting crazy, let's just say 8-1 and is like the best quote-unquote realistic scenario. That would put the Padres at 83 wins. Right now, the Cubs have 79 wins. So you need the Cubs to win no more than three games for them to fit basically the realistically. That's like kind of like the, the floor of what you can expect for the Padres to finish ahead of the Cubs. So it's kind of like when you look at it, looking looking at the schedules, think of it that way. It's like Padres win one, Cubs win no more than three games, they finish ahead of the Cubs. And that's really the, that's really their path. It's really finishing ahead of the Cubs and then hoping for for a tiebreaker over um, the Reds or the Reds and the Marlins. Yeah, and I think that's that's the way they look at it is like we can we don't have to beat the Reds. We don't have to beat the Marlins. We just have to tie the Reds and Marlins. I think there's a whole lot of people out there who are going to learn a whole lot about tiebreakers over the next week or so. Because if that's something you pay attention to basically until this point in the year and it's like oh great when did the Padres even play the Reds I don't I don't remember I have to go back and look it up so it's like when you look at the remainder of the, the season they they don't need to beat everybody they just need to beat the they need to not get beat by the Diamondbacks and the Cubs or at least not both of them and to tie the other two teams it's wild but it could happen it really could and now I feel, as I kind of alluded to before, I feel like I, I got my face because we did this piece on the site last night of like, hey, we could get four teams in the playoffs who've never won the World Series. And like, as unlikely as it is, it's like, well, actually, it could be five because the Padres are one of those other those other two teams. So we'll, we will see. As unlikely as it is, if they get in, we would have one more team that has never won the World Series in the postseason field. Yeah, I, I don't want to like go too deeply into picking apart like how the Padres have gotten to this point, but there, there's a couple things I think are funny. Like if you looked at what happened to them all season long, there was never a great answer as to why they weren't winning. You know, it's not like they had some serious injuries uh, like the Yankees did, right? It's not like anybody wildly underperformed. Uh, you know, even now they are essentially league average in run scoring, and they've only allowed the sixth fewest runs. So if you look at run differential, better than the Phillies, better than the Blue Jays, better than the Brewers, and they basically struggled in the biggest spots in extra innings and clutch situations and all that and so i totally get why the uh, inclination is well it must be because they're not working together as a team and the culture is bad and whatever and again i can't really speak to any of that but what's funny here is if you look at like why have they been playing well lately for the first couple of months they were just brutal with runners in scoring position one of the worst teams in baseball i think second worst over the first five months batting average now it's sixth best in september do you know why that is matt why would such a situation happen is it because they're all best friends now tell me why why could such a thing happen i know baseball random Yes, because runners and scoring position stuff is not a skill, no matter how much anybody wants it to be. The Blue Jays were awful at this for a month. They're playing great. The Rangers, the opposite. I don't want to say nothing matters, but like less matters than people think it does. As sad it is to say. I mean, we just talked about Snell's going to win the side. Josh Hader has been great. Juan Soto, like it's actually been great. They're, they are a better team than people think. And even though I don't think this is going to end with them in the playoffs, if they do, watch them go on a run. Watch them like win a couple of series in a row because they have good players that that getting there is the hard part you get there and i, I kind of feel okay about them no the actual baseball thing would be for them to go finish the season eight one make the playoffs and be like watch out for the Padres; they're hot they swept. can't be stopped and then lose two straight games yeah. and be knocked a hundred percent correct that okay now i changed my mind that's what we're rooting for all right our second topic the tampa bay rays they are going to make the playoffs already clinched a spot still uncertain as to whether it will be as the ale east champions or the top wild card but they'll be there regardless and uh, as i wrote about on the site this morning something very interesting happened with their bullpen when they got off remember this incredibly good start to start the season i kind of forgot they started 13 and 0 that's what happened uh and they were 40 and 18 through may before kind of falling back a little bit i remember even at that point looking at them and saying huh their bullpen 
it's just not that good. It's just, it's not missing many bats. And they were actually, through the first two months of the season, the worst strikeout bullpen in all of baseball, just ahead of Oakland, right? Like Oakland was striking out more guys in the bullpen than Tampa Bay was. Not great. And you figured it had to get better, and it did. And then I was surprised when I looked up earlier this week in September. They have struck out 36% of the batters they faced, the bullpen has. That's not just the best this month. It's the best of any month by any team since at least 1969. There has never been a bullpen strikeout rate month like this. And, you know, it's percentage points, so maybe tomorrow they'll be in second or third or whatever. But to go from behind the A's to the best we've seen in beyond my own lifetime in the span of a season is incredible to me. And that's why I think, especially with bullpens, when we get to the postseason, you're going to see a whole bunch of predictions and rankings and stuff and say, well, they were the fourth best at this in the regular season or the third worst. And it'll be like, yeah, but that's with guys they, you know, cut or DFA'd or traded away in June because they were bad. Like that doesn't reflect the roster you have right now. And you'll be surprised to know that there's a lot of different guys here than there were in April. Right? The Rays have traded for guys and made them better, gotten guys back from injury. And I feel like it's a very Rays thing to do to be able to make this kind of change this quickly. It is like this is peak Rays, right? I think it's almost like I'll admit, I think when you when you pitched this idea recently, I sort of like was forgot that they had even had like a lull in having in in pitching in relief pitching strikeout dominance. I was like, oh, this is what the Rays do. They like churn out anonymous relievers who you turn on the TV in October and the casual baseball fans like, wait, who's this guy who's like throwing this like, you know, this witchcraft? But now the current version they have is that and the pitching staff looks like you know going into october like glasnow's looking pretty good like the bullpen's coming to shape like you start to feel okay like we see you raise well like i'm i'm very curious to see how this uh this goes for them in october yeah i think there's something to be said here too maybe just about the importance of all this depth i mean you think about the Rays, right their best position player wander franco you know gone because of suspension or, or on the administrative list right that's a tough thing for a lot of teams to swallow is, the, oh, our best player is no longer available. Several of their best starting pitchers out for the season. Tommy John surgery. That would have sunk so many teams in baseball. And because they're the Rays, like the Dodgers, there's always the next guy, the next guy, the next guy. And I don't want to say, like, you lose guys like McClanahan and Franco and you don't notice it. Like, of course you do. It hasn't really stopped them from winning. I think that's like the most impressive thing. You compare that to the Mets, right? That didn't really work out that way. They had all these superstars. The depth wasn't there. I think that's the Padres problem to some extent too. And it's it's not as much fun, I guess, to say, hey, our 43rd guy is better than your 18th guy. It's not as much fun as signing Carlos Correa, but that's that's kind of where the wins come from here. No question. It's because it's not just that they have like good backup plans. They have backup plans to their backup plans. And that's that's like that's exactly what you're saying. It's like that's a very good way of saying it. Our, our 43rd guy is better than your 18th guy. Yeah. And, and the, the peak raise thing about it is um, finding guys from other organizations and instantly making them better. Nobody noticed Robert Stevenson getting traded from Pittsburgh in June. Well, now it he has increased his strikeout rate from 28% to 42%. Jake Diekman actually got cut by the White Sox. The White Sox. Uh, and he wasn't pitching well. And they came in and changed him around. And all of a sudden, he's almost not doubled the strikeout rate, but he's increased it by a lot. Pete Fairbanks is healthy. Sharon Armstrong is healthy. Pete Fairbanks, I think, is maybe the most underrated reliever in off baseball. I don't know if you watched him close out the series against Baltimore the other night, where he's throwing like 175 miles an hour. Do you remember how they got him? Traded from Texas for Nick Solak. This is what they do. This is like a very race thing to do. It's it's overblown to say don't trade with the Rays. The Rays traded away like Tommy Pham and Blake Snell and Herman Marquez. But if they want one of your pitchers and the pitcher has a six ERA, I would look inside and say, uh oh, what are we doing wrong? <laughs> Why can't we make it? 
our third topic here, and I'm going to give full credit to Matt because I hadn't noticed this one and he brought it up the other day. Have you noticed that Wilson Contreras has been fantastic lately? You might remember his season by starting extremely poorly by signing the big free agent contract with the Cardinals to replace Yadi Molina, and then they threw him under the bus like immediately. Didn't really hit. It was a whole big kerfuffle. And I got to be honest, I stopped paying attention to both him and the Cardinals like two months ago because they just haven't been that good or that interesting. And then Matt pointed out to me the other day, like, hey, he's going to might have a season line similar to what he did last year. And if you look at second half hitting leaders in terms of weighted runs created plus, this is a list where the top four are Betts, Olsen, Acuna, Betts, Olsen, Otani, and Acuna. Wilson Contreras is 11th. He has been the 11th best hitter in the second half. And all of a sudden you're starting to say, oh yeah, they signed a very good player. That's why they went and did this. Sometimes it takes guys a couple of months to settle into a new home. We've seen this how many times before? I didn't notice this. I wonder how many other people haven't even noticed this. It's actually pretty wild when you look at his season line. He currently has a 125 OPS plus. Last year, his OPS plus was 126. So his career high is 127. So we're basically seeing the best version of Wilson Contreras. No, not that we've ever seen, but like this is what this is. The, the Cardinals are very much getting what they paid for in Wilson Contreras. And it's actually pretty wild. I went back and looked at sort of the whole arc of his season because the narrative of the, I mean, the Cardinals got off to a terrible start, right? And Contreras did actually get off to a terrible start himself. But here's what's weird. So he still opens the season. He's nine for 46 through 14 games with one extra base hit. Brutal, right? He then goes on a heater. And from April 16th through May 4th, he has 357, 413, 607. The problem was the Cardinals went 4 and 13 in that stretch. And I guess they decided that he was the problem or that maybe he should just be hitting, right? So that was when they made the big announcement. Out of nowhere, apparently even catching Wilson Contreras by surprise, where like their manager came out and was like, yeah, he's not going to catch anymore. This guy who we like wind and nine to be our Yadi relation replacement after four weeks, like it's not working. You know, Ali Marmol talked about, oh, we pitcher familiarity, like our guys, they, they, they know, they feel more comfortable with it. I can't even pronounce his last name. Is Knizner? How you pronounce Kisner. it? What? Kisner. Kisner. Kisner? Just Kisner. We feel more comfortable with Andrew Kisner. They DH Contreras only for nine games. They actually go six and three in that span. Uh, of course, Contreras stopped hitting. <laughs> the Cardinal season has never really taken off. That said, it really feels like Contreras was a total, total scapegoat in all of this. And to his credit, he's continued hitting. Not that I put a lot of stock in catcher ERA, but in 97 games as catcher, Cardinals pitchers have a 501 ERA with Contreras. It's 443 with Kisner, but for some reason, they've got a 302 batting on average balls and batting average on balls in play with Kisner. And 334 with Contreras. Like, can Contreras really be faulted for that? That seems like not really his fault. They actually have a better strikeout to walk ratio with Contreras than they do with Kisner, which kind of just shows you how noisy all of this is. Um, and perhaps most notably is the Cardinals as a team have the worst batting average on balls in play allowed in baseball this year. The worst. And even John Mazeliak in the middle of the season, when he was like, when they waved the white flag and started trading guys away, he basically said, and I quote, we're thinking about how we evaluate pitchers, and that's something we're taking a hard look at upstairs. More swing and miss versus ground ball will be baked into future thinking. Like, it didn't take a genius to figure out the Cardinals did not have pitchers who miss bats. They haven't for a while. I think that the ban on the shift probably hurt them more than most teams because I actually think that they were pretty good at mitigating that by their 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 infield positioning. But this year, it blew up in their face. Contreras became the scapegoat, but to his credit, he's continued to rake. I think that's all very well said. And I can tell you, everybody on the face of the planet looked at the Cardinals last winter and was like writing about the 2023 Cardinals heading into the season and say, they don't have an ace. They don't have a number two. Maybe if you like Jordan Montgomery enough, you can call him a number two kind of pitcher, but he's certainly not some massive bat misser. They're, they're not going to miss bats. They have a whole bunch of like number four starters and you know Jordan Montgomery. And I think people forgot this. Do you know how many games last season Yadier Merlina actually started behind the plate? 77. 
So it's not like he was there like the whole season, right? It's not like, oh, we lost Yachty and now things are falling apart. They had the 28th best strikeout rate last year and they have the 28th best strikeout rate this year. And you combine a pitching staff that doesn't miss bats with uh, a defense that, whether it's the shift or not, essentially forgot how to play defense. Even even Arenado was poor for a couple months in the season, in the midseason, but he's turned it around. A lot of this can't be surprising. I just think it's 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 interesting to see what's happened because for the first couple months, you thought like, this isn't going to last. They're they're going to trade him. They're going to have to find like something to do with this guy. They can't have this around for another four years because they've, they've soured the relationship this badly. And I, I certainly can't speak to the relationship, but all of a sudden it's like one of the best players on the team again. You know, he is like someone you go into next year saying, oh yeah, if we're going to be good, it's going to be because Wilson Contreras is going to be a big part of this team. Definitely what we thought was going to have happened in a couple of months. We'll take a quick break. Then we'll be back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. We're back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Each week, Matt and I like to finish off with a pair of guys you should know a little bit more about. My guy plays for a team that is decidedly not a contender, so I thought maybe you know he's been on my radar for a while. I should probably make sure we get to him before the postseason starts. What would you say if I told you there was an infielder on the Royals who rated better than Bobby Witt Jr. at chase rate, hard hit rate, whiff rate and outs above average you'd say to yourself no I, I would have heard of this guy have you heard of michael garcia who's been playing third base for them you probably haven't he has been on my radar for a while because he rates incredibly well on defense but also this there are only six qualified hitters who rate in the 90th percentile or better in both hard hit rate and chase hit the ball hard don't go outside the strike zone to get to it six the other five are aaron judge juan soto mike trout yandy garcia and matt chapman and also michael garcia who rates in the 99th percentile and outs above average. Here is a guy who's an elite gold glove level third baseman who hits the ball hard and doesn't chase. And you're thinking to yourself, well, surely this man must be in the MVP conversation. What if I also told you he had an OPS of 695 with a mere four homers in 479 plate appearances because you already know where this is going. There are no barrels here. 11th percentile in barrels, tons of ground balls. I was so happy to see Yandy Diaz show up on that last list because who does this sound like? Yandy Diaz from like four years ago, except with way better defense. So Michael Garcia was signed by the Royals as an international free agent in 2016. Kind of went level by level up until his debut last year. And, you know, same kind of stuff. Never hit more than 11 home runs in a season. But he was a shortstop in the minors. And eventually it kind of became clear that Bobby Witt was going to be their shortstop. So he never played third base until last season. And now he's pretty likely to win a gold glove. His 12 outs above average are best in the American League at third base, second behind Ole Brian Hayes uh, in the majors. And when you look at the way he got here, it's not like his path is terribly interesting in a way that a lot of the other guys we have. His extended family is really interesting. He is the eighth member of his extended family to play in the big leagues. His uncles are Kelvin and Jose Escobar. His cousin is Edwin Escobar. There's another one, Angel Escobar. Former Royals legend Alcides Escobar is his cousin. Vicente Campos, who I'll admit I don't remember. And there's one other guy, uh, 
Ronald somebody, Acuna. I think he plays for the Braves. Uh, they work out together in the offseason. And so I don't know if he's going to get the ball off the ground. I, I don't know if he's the next Yandi or whatever. But I know this. He's only 23 years old. And he's an elite defender. And he hits the ball hard. And he's got great plate discipline. And if the Royals are going to go anywhere anytime soon, you need guys like this who have the skill and can maybe figure it out. Because I can tell you this, a left side of the infield with Witt and Michael Garcia, and then a healthy Vinny, my man, on the right side, and Cole Reagan's on the mound, and somehow 26 other good players. But that's a start. It's a start. I mean, the Yanni Diaz thing is interesting, right? Because he's a guy that, like, you know, there was a certain community, including us, who was like, hey, this guy's interesting. And the Rays saw it. They unearthed it. So, like, there's a little bit of a starter kit there, plus the good defense, as you mentioned. Very interesting story. Also, if Luis Angel Acuna makes the majors, he will have another ah, <laughs> extended family. Yes. Okay. I like that. In the majors. There's that. Speaking of Yanni Diaz, my guy this week is on the Rays. And normally we try and mix it up. We talked about the Rays earlier and try and hit more teams, but this is a guy I've been wanting to talk about for a while, so I'm just going to do it anyway. And my guy this week is Rays third baseman Isaac Paredes, who, believe it or not, has a 137 weighted runs created plus, which ranks 10th among all qualifiers in baseball. That is ahead of Julio Rodriguez. It's ahead of Luis Arise. It's ahead of Cody Bellinger. And the reason that I've been wanting to talk about Paredes for a long time is that like, I know sometimes we joke, oh, this guy broke StatCast. Like he actually kind of seems to be breaking StatCast. And what I mean by that is that like, normally there's a very strong correlation between quality of contact and production. You know, there's weirdness over the course of, you know, a given season and, you know, ups and downs. But over the long haul, you know, your quality of contact generally aligns well with your production. We're now on two years and over 900 plate appearances of Isaac Paredes expected weight on base and weighted weight on base being pretty divergent. Last year, his expected weight on base was 297. His weight on base was 312. This year, his expected weight on base is 312 and his actual weight on base is 363. And I haven't looked that much in it, but it's like he is, you look at all of his home runs, they're basically all in the same spot. It's like dead pull. It's like 98 mile an hour off the bat, like just inside the foul pole. He's like, a, as, like hits a lot of dead pull soft line drives. I'm not sure that's something you could really like replicate but he's almost essentially found a soft spot in the uh in the in the defense so to speak you look like you want to say something i do uh i can i can tell you from personal experience that you can replicate that that we have a softball playoff game tonight this is entirely my approach is to hit soft line drives off the short left field that's that's all i can do to get to power so i'm gonna go up now and think of myself as isak paredes thank you for that continue for those who don't remember, he was originally signed by the Cubs in 2015. He was traded uh, along with Heimer Candelario to the Tigers in 2017 for Alex Avila and Justin Wilson. And then in 2022, the Tigers traded Paredes and a competitive balance pick to the Rays in exchange for Austin Meadows. The other interesting thing that I want to say about Paredes is he's having one of the greatest seasons ever by a position player born in Mexico. And that is not hyperbole. According to baseball reference, he is just the fifth position player ever born in Mexico to exceed four war in a season. The others are Bobby Avila, who did it four times, Aurelio Rodriguez, who did it once, Vinny Castilla, who did it once, and Jorge Orta, or used to be called George Orta, who did it once. So like this is like there's been a lot of players to come from Mexico. So the fact that he's having one of the best seasons ever for a position player from Mexico is pretty wild to me. And also, as I was researching him, I went down the rabbit hole on Bobby Avila. So in some ways, I'm giving you a bonus guy we should be talking more about because, you know, it is Hispanic Heritage Month and we're talking a lot about the influence of Latinos in baseball. Bobby Avila was a dude. And I think I totally underappreciated how good that guy was. He was the best player on the 1954 Indians, led the American League in hitting, 
and finished second in the MVP voting. And the reason why was that Larry Doby finished third. So those two guys both got first place votes and like almost like beat each other because Yogi Berra ended up winning because like the two Indians guys split the vote with each other. Bobby Villa was a dude. Isak Prittis is a dude. Vinny Castilla, by the way, is my go-to Rockies, Braves, Immaculate Grid combination of guys, just so you know. Although I guess maybe now Sam Hilliard should be that guy. But no, this is... This is a good one because you're right. He is in the Freitas is in the seventh percentile in hard hit rate. I am aware that people are like, well, that breaks that cast. And I kind of look at it as there's many different ways to be successful. And I think he has chosen, I don't want to say a harder way to be successful, but it's not the path I think most hitters would try to take, you know, but it's cool. It's, I mean, we have praised the Rays maybe a little bit too much, but this is kind of what they do. Find a guy who has a skill and like really lean into that skill. Yeah, I mean, because I mean, there's obviously been players like Luis Arise, you know, last year, Jeff McNeil, who succeed without hitting the ball hard, right? But th- those guys specifically are like a very archetype left-handed hitter, whereas like it's without a ton of power. Whereas Paredes hits home runs. Like he's a right-handed hitter who hits home runs and also doesn't hit the ball hard. That's sort of what, what makes him unique in my mind. There really there really aren't many guys like him. I'm like, I'm, I mean, like may have to look into it more to see if there is anyone else like him. Well, I can tell you that the other guy this year, who is not exactly like him, but a little bit of left-handed uh, Cody Bellinger in here, in the sense of he's not actually hitting the ball that hard, but he's successful. Obviously, you know, the defensive value is different and everything, but I like this one a lot because this is exactly the kind of guy who in a postseason game is going to hit like a 375-foot grand slam, and everybody's going to be like, who? Who's? I never heard of this guy before, and we can say, well, you should have been listening to the Ballpark Coach podcast because we introduced you to him. And that will do it for this week's podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever your podcasts are enjoying the show. Howdy suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. See you next week.